You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. So we're in a series. This is part seven of our series uh, called uh, Survivor. It's based on the book of First and Second Thessalonians. And uh, if you're new to Bayshore, one of the things we like to do here is we like to sort of go through sections of the Bible and talk about what the Bible says. So when you read the Bible on your own, you have a little bit of background to kind of navigate through it. If you're an unbeliever and you're thinking about following Jesus and you've come in here to Bayshore, uh, just teaching the Bible is a really good thing for you to kind of begin to think about why, uh, why this makes sense to you and all that. So that's why we're doing this. So one of the great things about teaching through Scripture is it brings you to sections in Scripture that deal with subjects that you would maybe otherwise avoid. So that's one of the reasons I love kind of systematically teaching through the scriptures and it kind of brings you to points where hey that's something I wouldn't normally talk about and so today we're looking at a really important section in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul talks about sexual immorality so we're going to talk about that a little bit but let me read the passage to you to see uh, for you to kind of get an understanding about how we get to this point 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Verses 1 through 8, it says, As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, and, uh, and for you know the instructions we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And in this matter, uh, no one should take advantage wrong or take advantage of his brothers or sisters. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to live an impure life, but to live a holy life. Therefore, if anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So Paul is writing to a uh, group of young Christians. Uh, we know from just studying the context of the, uh, this passage of Scripture that he's writing to people that have been in the Lord maybe a year maybe less than a year, and predominantly they are Gentiles. They aren't Jewish people, so they don't have a lot of background in the Old Testament, the Old uh, Scriptures and the Old, uh, Old Testament, so they don't know anything. So he's talking to them and has had conversations with them when he was with them about what happens after you become a Christian. What happens to you after you become a Christian? And he says that uh, he had had this conversation with, you, with them, and he's reminding them. He says, after you become a Christian, it's God's will that you be sanctified, that you be sanctified, that your life change. So that's, a, that's a, where he begins with that whole, whole thing. And by the way, there's, there's three fides in the, in the Christian's life. You're justified, you're sanctified, and you're glorified. Justified, it says in Romans 5, 1, 
that we've been justified by faith. That means that we have put our faith in Jesus and legally we are innocent and not guilty before the Lord. That's a legal term. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you may look at your life this week and boy, you were up and down a little bit and maybe things weren't always kosher and uh, you think, oh my gosh, I've lost my salvation. When Karen and I, uh, we grew up Methodist and when uh, I met Karen, in fact, at the uh, Methodist church when I was in ninth grade and uh, secretly fell in love with her and took, her, took me years to convince her to even look at me. But um, anyhow, Karen, the pastor we had at that church, you know, uh, in fact, when Karen was there before I arrived, the pastor she had always preached salvation, and, and which is a good thing, but he never really taught much beyond that. And she would come to church every Sunday, and she would think, well, gosh, I haven't done really good this week. I've maybe messed up a few times. And so every Sunday, she would come to the altar and ask the Lord to forgive her of her sins and, and sort of get resaved. And the pastor's theology was so bad that he would say to her these words, I think you've got it this time. Well, she didn't lose her salvation just because she messed up. She was declared not guilty before the Lord when she put her faith in the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus himself. So you don't lose your salvation when you sin. Uh, you've been justified by faith, and it says in Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, that means to me just as if you had never sinned, you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God. The word peace there is arene, it's not... It's not like, um, you know, you have tranquil, tranquil feelings inside. You may have that. But it's a peace in the absence of war. You were at war with God because you were a sinner. And Jesus came and you put your faith in Jesus and you're no longer at war with God. You've been declared righteous. So that's to be justified. Sanctified, by the way, justified, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're instantly made not guilty. You're instantly made righteous in God's sight. That happens instantly. Then the second fide is sanctified. Sanctified, and that's where your life changes on the outside. What's happened on the inside begins to be manifested on the outside, and that is progressive. That takes place over a period of time. So sanctification takes a place for the rest of your life. And so sanctification is very, very important. And it's something that happens until Jesus comes. Glorified, glorified means uh, one day our bodies will change. Our bodies are aging now. Our bodies are getting older. We have aches and pains. We're losing our hair. We're getting wrinkles. Our knees are bad. All the stuff that we talk about as people in my age group. Uh, and the Bible says that one day we will receive a body, it says in Philippians, like his body. A body that will never age, a body that will never get sick, a body that will never suffer. That's glorification. So you got justification, you got sanctification, you got glorification. So Paul's talking to them here about sanctification, and he talks specifically about sexual sin. Specific about sexual sin. Now, why he pulled that out as a specific thing, I'm not sure, but I think it has something to do with the culture in which they lived in. Now, here's the deal. The people that lived in Paul's world lived in a very promiscuous society, very promiscuous society. Every Greek city was Las Vegas. Every Greek city was Las Vegas. And sexuality was so rampant, I mean, sexual immorality was just normal. It was so normal. It's something that 
everybody did. It was just how it was. I was in Corinth a number of years ago, and uh, you know, I visited the city, the ancient city of Corinth, where Paul wrote the book of First and Second Corinthians. And uh, I was on the uh, the kind of the the, uh, the Acropolis, the high part of the city where the temples were and all the buildings were. And this young European couple came to me, and I guess I looked like a historian or something. They thought I was like a, a guide, and they said, do you know where the Temple of Aphrodite is, where the Temple of Aphrodite was? I said, I don't know. I know it was on this Acropolis somewhere. The Temple of Aphrodite was the goddess of love, and uh, the temple was on top of the hill there in Corinth. And uh, every evening, a thousand prostitutes would come out of the temple and lure men back into the temple for sexual favors, and that's how they supported the temple, and it was to honor Aphrodite. And Paul wrote a lot of things about sex to the, first Corinthian, or for, to the people of Corinth. So the world that they lived in was very, very highly charged sexually. And here's the thing. The people of Thessalonica didn't know that sex was a big deal. They thought that that was just normal. Sex in the ancient world was like taking a drink. If you got thirsty, you took a drink. If you had sexual desire, you just acted out sexually in some way. So that's the world they lived in. Here's what Leon Morris wrote. He's a commentator, you know, really smart guy. He says about the Thessalonians, he said, A marked feature of life in the first century Roman Empire, and specifically in Greece, was sexual laxity. The Thessalonian Christians lived in a world where people did not see fornication as sin, but as part of normal life. So that was the sort of the deal. They didn't know it was wrong to go to a brothel uh, like, you know, if the archaeology, you know, has uncovered the graffiti around the city of Rome and Pompeii. And uh, you think modern porn is awful. You ought to see the pictures that the Roman Empire had. Very, very erotic pictures. And you would walk by a building and have an erotic picture on the outside, and that meant that was a brothel inside. And I, could, I wouldn't dare show you some of those pictures, but they were very, very uh, lewd. And so they didn't know there was anything wrong with it. Here's the attitude. This guy named, I read this quote to you before, but this guy, Demosthenes, he's, he was an uh, Athenian statesman. And he summarizes the view of sex in the ancient world. He says this. Here's what he says. For this is what living with a woman as one's wife means. To have children by her and to introduce the sons to the members of the clan and of the deme. And to betroth daughters to husbands as one's own. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of our persons but wives to bear legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. So that's the attitude of sex in the, in the ancient world. The attitude was, okay, we got wives, and wives produce uh, offspring, posterity for us, and that's the you know, legitimate heirs. But then we have mistresses for pleasure. That's just like when we have a sexual desire, we act out with a mistress. And then if you can't get your mistress because she's tied up, you have a concubine. If you have a sexual desire during the day, you use your concubine to satisfy your sexual pleasures. So this is the attitude of the world that Paul lived in towards sex. So uh, when he's writing them about it's not God's will for you to have sexual morality, you know, we hear that, you come to church, you, you know, you've just figured that's going to be the case. And in that world, it's like, what? 
I mean, they're taking notes. You know, well, we need to write this down. They never heard that before. They did not know that sexual purity was something that was called uh, upon us to live out in our, in our Christian life. They didn't know that. That was completely new. We had a, a, a staff retreat a few uh, weeks ago. It was a, uh, we just met at Trap Pond and with about 20 of us on staff and we rode bikes through the trails. And we had one of our, uh, one of our millennials, or I think it was younger than a millennial actually, young guy that's a real great part of our staff this summer. Uh, he was riding, he, everybody didn't have bikes, so we provided bikes for some of the, some of the staff people. And this uh, guy had never ridden a bike that did not have handbrakes on it. Uh, and he had never seen that. And we had a beach cruiser for him, and, you know, it didn't have any handbrakes. And he's riding the bike. He did not know that you had to push the pedal backwards to lock the brakes to stop. Now, to me, that was, that was like, wow, you didn't know that. Uh, he didn't know that. We had a bike wreck because of that. And um, so that, that was interesting to me that they didn't know that. So millennials and younger people, there's certain things that they don't know, you know, that they just haven't experienced. How many know how to stop a bike that doesn't have hand pedal? Uh, you know, you know that. We, we grew up with bikes that were like that. So they didn't know that. When you think about this world, they didn't know that sexual immorality was wrong. They didn't, they didn't know it was wrong. And uh, here's the big number one takeaway. Paul is teaching them that the sexual values of Christians is to be different than the sexual values of culture. That's the big takeaway. He's saying that, listen, sexuality in the culture, sexuality in the world is not to be the same as sexuality, view of sexuality in the church. Now, here's the problem. The problem is in our modern churches, because we're avoiding most of Scripture, we tell people to read through the Bible every January, and the churches preach about 2% of it. And we avoid most of the stuff. And we never teach on things that we should be teaching on. But Paul is saying that, listen, hey, headline here. He said, you know, people go to mistresses in the culture. People go to brothels in the culture. People have uh, prostitutions that they go to in the culture. People commit affairs in the culture. People have mistresses. But that's not God's will for you. God's called you to be sanctified, to be a people that are set apart for the holy purposes of God. And he says... Uh, it's, not God, it's not God's will that you commit sexual immorality. Now, that's the, that's the word that he uses there, and uh, it's the key word there, and it says, uh, in verse 3, it is not God's will that you, it is God's will that you be sanctified, and that you, you should avoid sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? So we need to define that. What is sexual immorality? It's the word pornea, and it's the word we get pornography from. And he said, you should avoid pornea. Now, what is pornea? Pornea is anything that is not a monogamous relationship between a man and woman. That's literally what the word means. It means affairs. It means going to a prostitute. It means uh, looking at porn. It means, uh, it, it means uh, you know, having sex before you make a covenant of marriage. It is anything that does not fit in the tight confines of a man and woman saying, I love you, 
I'm committed to you. I'm making a covenant with you before witnesses, and we are going to be husband and wife. Anything outside of that is pornea. So when you wonder about what is sexual morality, and people like, <laughs> I was just watching, I shouldn't even say this, I just watched this thing on Hulu about, uh, called impeachment about Monica Walensky and the whole uh, affair with Clinton and, uh, you know, terrible, terrible stuff, just terrible stuff that happened. Uh, and they were, they, were, they were slicing hairs about what sexual immorality was in those debates. How many remember those days? Don't raise your hand, it's just embarrassing splitting hairs about what sexual immorality was. And it's, it's simple. Sexual immorality is anything, any kind of sex that happens outside of a man and woman in a monogamously committed relationship with each other. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. So here's how it looks. God made Adam in the beginning you know, we have the story of how God made Adam. We have one creation story in chapter one, which is sort of like a poem. Then we have uh, the creation story in more of a narrative form in, in, in chapter two of Genesis. And then here's how it works. You know, God created Adam, and God told Adam to name all the animals. So he's naming all the animals. And he's naming all the animals, and he's got, you know, male and female giraffe. He's got male and female uh, horse, got a mare and a stallion, he's got, you know, uh, uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Rabbit, he's naming all the animals, and it occurs to him that everything in the creative order has a pair but him. And he had an epiphany that he was alone, and God said, it's not good for man to be alone. So God put Adam into a deep sleep. He goes into a deep sleep, and the Lord takes a rib out of his side indicating that man and woman are not, are not to be superior to one another, but they stand side by side in partnership and marriage, and they make decisions together. And if there's a you know, need for a deal breaker, you know, God says the husband better get on his knees and pray about what they should do. But they're supposed to be side by side, not taken from the head as, as she would be over man, not taken from his foot as she'd be under, under man, but she would be so, beside man. That's healthy. And then Adam wakes up, and God says to Adam, I got something for you. And Adam's got a bloody side and from where the rib came out, and it's a little sore. And he said, God said to Adam, I got something really special for you. And he brings to him Eve. And Eve is buck naked. She doesn't have any clothes on. She doesn't even have what you wear at Victoria's Secrets. I mean, she is naked. And Adam gets, Adam's in, inspired. He's inspired. He names her. Whoa, man. We'll call her woman. Oh, man, that's amazing. And he gets poetic. He said, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And it, the Hebrew is, is so, he's so excited he can't get the words out fast enough. God made a beautiful woman for a man and she was naked and he was supposed to look at her body and enjoy her body and her body was the only body naked he was ever supposed to look at because God made her just for him. God didn't say, well, if you think Eve is something, 
Carol come out behind that, that, uh, that oak tree, and here's Carol the brunette. She comes out there. Here's Carol. If you get tired of Eve, here's Carol. He didn't say, if you think Carol's something, you think Eve is something. Amber, come out behind that bush right now. He made one woman for one man. And that man was supposed to look at her naked body and enjoy her naked body. God didn't make it ugly. God made it attractive. And he's supposed to enjoy her naked body and only her naked body. God created libido. God created sex. God made this in an incredible way. And I say, yay, God. Amen. Amen. We're getting with it now. There we go. Come on now. Let me read to you what Proverbs 5 says. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 5 says this. You're going to love this passage when I finally find it. Proverbs chapter 5, I think I went by it. Proverbs chapter 5, here we go. Everybody talk among yourselves here somewhere. Here it is. Here we go, Proverbs 5.15. Proverbs 5.15. This is a, a, a father instructing his son about sexuality. You know, kids need to learn about sex from their dad and mom, not from the locker room. So dad, in Proverbs, it's a dad talking honestly with, their, with, their, with his son about sex. And I don't know how many of us, we raised our hands, how many of us had a really honest conversation with our parents about sex? Probably not many. And um, here's what it says. The father says to the boy, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. He says, the dad is saying, when you have sexual desires and you are sexually uh, motivated inside, you satisfy your sexual desire with your own cistern, with a well that God has given you. Part of the design of marriage is, in fact, 1 Corinthians 7 uh, underscores this, that the Bible says that husbands and wives should be tuned into the sexual needs of their partner, and part of our calling is to meet that sexual need. And I don't know, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but like, you know, you go to the beach and all the swimwear, what the world is with the swimwear now? I'm telling you, it's like no swimwear, that's not swimwear, that's, you know, dental floss. I don't know what that is exactly. But you shouldn't, your body is not, as a woman, your body is not made for viewership of all the male population. And I'm not saying you measure your hems and all that, you know, we're not going to get into legalism, but you, you dress modestly. You go to the beach, wear some clothes. But when you're alone with your husband, when you're just with him, I mean to tell you, you bring it out. You get the good-looking stuff. And I'm not going to, you know, I don't have any pictures for you on the screen for that. <laughs> but you're supposed to look exotic for your husband. But not for everybody else. I don't get it. I don't get it. I was at, you know, Karen and I were at the beach in this winter in Florida. And I'm telling I'm like, what in the world has happened to swimwear? I mean, it, it's not existent anymore. There's, why bother? We should be 
tuned in to satisfying the sexual needs of our spouse, and that's the focus. And this is what this proverb says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets and your streams of water in the public squares, don't give your sexuality to anyone. A a cistern is is a place where water has a boundary. There's boundary there. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's saying to his son, make sure that, may you just have your fountain, may you be constantly satisfied sexually from a relationship with your spouse. And may you rejoice with the wife of your youth. And listen to this, listen how graphic the book of Proverbs is. A loving doe and a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. How many have never heard that text preached on? Just raise your hand. May her breast satisfy you. May she satisfy you with her beauty and how God made her. Never, may her breast satisfy you. May you ever be intoxicated by her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? If you're married and you have covenant relationship with a wife that you're married to, God gives you the green light for sex. The green light for sex. Take time for it. Get rested for it. If you've got kids, put duct tape on their mouth and lock them in the closet. Your relationship, the, one, the greatest gift you can give your Your children is a wonderful, passionate relationship with your spouse. So, Paul, as he writes to them, he says, listen, in 1 Corinthians 7, a lot of Paul's letters, he deals with this kind of thing. But he says that sexuality is, is so gifted, it's such a gift from God to us, it's to be enjoyed, uh, but sexual immorality, anything outside of what I just described is sexual immorality. So is looking at porn sexual immorality? Yes, it is. You're fantasizing with having sex with a person that's not your spouse. 40 million Americans regularly view pornography. 36% of the internet is dedicated to porn. One in four Google searches is searching for illicit sexual material. One in four. And now we have, you know, dating sites, and dating sites can be a wonderful thing, but you've got, uh, you got different ones that are not so much uh, a good thing. Tinder, swipe right, swipe left. Tinder now has four million swipes, or not four million, sorry, one, one trillion stripes. Swipes, meaning, and Tinder is not really the let's get to know each other and think about getting married. Tinder is more many, it's become let's hook up for a little while. So Paul said to that culture, he said that was their world, that was their world. It was the world, the world that they lived in is the same world that we live in. And Paul is saying, listen, 
It is God's will that you would be sanctified and that you would avoid sexual immorality. So the, the culture of sexuality in the church and people that are followers of Jesus, I don't expect people that don't follow Jesus to follow this. But people that are followers of Jesus, and listen, if you are a disciple of Jesus and you love Jesus, you've committed to follow Jesus, would you raise your hand and say, amen, I'm a follower of Jesus. My phone just uh, was responding to something Siri thought I asked for. But anyhow, I don't know what that's going to be. But So God has, has ordained it to be something special. So, back when uh, Columbus went to, went to uh, the New World, 1492, when he went to the New World, uh, he discovered something that was unknown to Europeans. He discovered the pineapple. And it, it didn't, wasn't called pineapple. He brought it back to Spain. And, uh, you know, of course, Europe was sugar-deprived. And he brought a pineapple back, and they said, it looks like a pine cone, but it's juicy inside like an apple, so we'll call it a pineapple. When uh, King Ferdinand tasted this fruit, he was like, wow, this is amazing. And on Columbus's second voyage back, he said, get as many of these as you can and bring them back. And the pineapple became an exquisite fruit in Europe that was only for the elite to partake of. It was, in fact, this is hard to believe, but uh, when he brought this fruit back to Europe, a pineapple cost $8,000 in today's currency. In fact, it was, the, it was the dream of a person in their life to have one taste, one taste of a pineapple. You could actually rent pineapples. If you're having a big party, you could rent a pineapple. You wouldn't eat it. It was too expensive. And you would have a viewing party where people would look at the pineapple. The pineapple was special because the pineapple was rare. And so in the 1600s, a couple hundred years later, pineapple is still very, very popular. Uh, you have, we have a picture of Charles II being presented with a pineapple as a, a show of his, that he's royalty and that he's full of honor. So what I'm saying is, is the pineapple was very, very special because it was rare. And it cost like $8,000 just to have one pineapple. And people would buy a pineapple, they would display it, they would never eat it, they would just rot because they wanted to protect it because it was so rare. But not so anymore. Now, you can go into Weiss or Food Lion and you can get pineapple chunks. And you can put them on a plate and you can take a toothpick and you can get as much pineapple as you want. No longer is it special because it's common. And no longer is sex special because it's so common. You can click on your mouse and you can see anything you want 
You can do just about anything you want, and we have become jaded to something that's meant to be very, very special. Every once in a while, not many times, but every once in a while, I'll have a couple stand on this stage that has been pure, has not engaged in premarital sex. I remember a couple that one of the, the guy now teaches at uh, Elam Bible Institute in Lima, New York, and him and his uh, wife got married. I married him on this stage, and it was like Mary and, Mary and Joseph. They were so pure. And God meant, when he designed the whole thing of sexuality, he designed that, Adam, I'm going to make a woman for you, and she'll be the only woman you ever look at naked and that you're ever intimate with. And it was so, so very special. Paul said, Paul said, this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you, that you be sanctified and that you avoid sexual immorality. You say it's impossible. Well, I love Joseph in Genesis 39. You know, the Bible says that he was well built and he was handsome, a lot like myself. And Potiphar's wife looked at him, and she lusted after him. And day after day after day, she pulled at him, and she said, come to bed with me. And he would not do it. And one day, they were alone in the house, and she grabbed a hold of his garment, and Joseph ran out of the house. There's a time to stand for the Lord, and there's a time to run. And he ran out of the house. And he, things didn't go good for a while, but there was a time when he was elevated. And he married a princess, Ashnath, and she became the mother of Ephraim and Manassas. And God had a princess for Joseph. If you're single, God's got a prince for you. He's got a princess for you. Now, now yells louder, but waiting lasts longer. You say, Pastor Danny, I, I wish I'd heard this message like a long time ago. It's too late for me now. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and to give us a brand new start. This is the day, it says in Psalms, Psalm 118, I believe. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it and be glad. We start right where we are now. And quit. We need to quit being carried by the culture around us and just doing everything everybody else is doing because it's leading to death. It's leading to discouragement. It's leading to loneliness. It's leading to sadness. When we embrace God's model, it's a model of joy. It's a model of goodness. So if you messed up, the Bible says that Samson messed up. He was involved with Delilah and prostitute from somewhere. I can't remember, Gath or somewhere. And he lost everything. But then the Bible says his hair began to grow back again and God began to restore him. I want you to say this with me. There is nothing I've done in the past that not, cannot be forgiven.
but I can start over. Yesterday, I had a frustrating day. Yesterday, I was, uh, uh, my, I had recently hung a brand new TV, a 65-inch TV uh, in my living room, which I'm, I love, you know, love this TV. And it just quit working. It quit working. It was not working anymore. And I was sad and grieved and, you know, covered in sackcloth and ashes. I just was so sad about this TV. And I tried to fix it. I couldn't get it fixed and got smart people to look at it and something's wrong with it. So I took it back to the place where I bought it. And that was a really tricky thing. I went to one store. They sent me to another store. I was in traffic for a couple hours yesterday and I take this TV back. And when I take it in, uh, well, I didn't take it in. I just took the receipt in. And I said, I got this TV like 30, 30, it was actually 40 days, 40 days ago. How many know that's a bad number? 30 is the day. You need 30. I didn't realize how important those 10 days were. So the lady said, well, bring the TV in. I think our manager's going to do something for you. going to get you fixed up. And so I had to go get the truck and bring it up there and had to haul this TV with help. And we get it in there and, and they take it to the manager. And I can see the manager and the worker having a little powwow. And then they called me over. And the lady said, I'm sorry, we can't do anything for you. Here's what she said. This TV is trash. <laughs> this TV is trash. Well, I bought the trash here, you know. This TV is trash. She said, I can't eat this money. I said, well, I got to eat it, right? You know, yeah, you got to eat it. And I, well, I just said, listen, and, and I just in loving Christian way, I said, I'm going to tell millions of people this story. <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm just going to tell a lot of people. <laughs> and I loaded back up and they said, call the, you know, the manufacturer. And I'm sure that's going to be a fun process. I can't wait to get into that. But I took my trash, my TV that didn't work, and they sent me back. But when you bring your broken sexuality to the Lord, and let's face it, we all have been affected by this perverted culture we live in, twisted culture we live in. When you take your broken sexuality to the Lord, He doesn't call you trash, and he doesn't send you back with no answer, but he redeems you, he forgives you, and he gives you a brand new start. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything is new. I want you to lift your hands. If you're a believer, first of all, if you're a believer, just raise your hand and say, Lord, I dedicate my sexuality to you. The best plan that God has for you is a plan that works where you're committed and loyal to one person, one person you're to be naked with, one person you're to be intimate with, one person you're to fantasize about, one person you're to think about. God designed that person for you, and you should enjoy that person. But we, as Paul's as Paul instructed the Thessalonians, we commit ourselves to avoid sexual immorality. I pray, Lord, for those here this morning that have, have fallen and struggled with 
pornography and different things. We know, God, it's so prolific all around us, and we ask you to just pour grace out on these folks and let them know how much you love them, how much you care about them. Network them with accountability partners and with Celebrate Recovery. And, and, and Lord, those that maybe live in a secret life, being involved with someone, we just pray that you'll break that power over their life and bring them to you, Lord so they can walk in the joy of the Lord. Just say this with me before we stand and sing. Just say this to me. Lord God, my body belongs to you. It's been bought with a price. I dedicate my body to live in your model and to live according to your plan for my life. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.